0: To overcome, we will have somewhere to look and something to put into practice that will help us to do that. And so, would you pray with me towards that end? Father in heaven, I ask this morning that you would help us, that you would help me to communicate, and that your spirit would do so to the glory of your Son. And it's his, his name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 17. And as you're turning there, I will provide a little bit of background context for us. John chapter 17 is known as the upper room discourse. That's just a fancy technical term for the last talk that Jesus gave in an upper room to his disciples the night before he would be crucified. And in John chapter 13, it starts out, he tells the disciples that he has cleansed them and he has made them fit for heaven. He's forgiven their sins because what he's going to do in the future on the cross. In chapter 14, he says, now that you're fit for heaven, the Spirit of God can come and live inside of you. I'm going to be going away, but I'm going to send another person, another comforter, who will come along and who will not only be with you, but he will actually be in you. In John chapter 15, he tells them that he's given them a job to do, and that job is to produce fruit, fruit, that job is to produce character qualities and good works as they go about living as citizens of the kingdom. And he reminds them that all they need to do in order to produce that and be successful is to abide in him. Because if they stay close to him, then they can't help but produce those kinds of fruits in their life. In chapter 16, he warns them that it's not going to be easy that in his going away, that they will be the ones who end up taking the brunt of the persecution that was directed at them because as they hated him, they will also hate the disciples. And Jesus wants them to know in advance that this is going to happen so their faith doesn't fail. And then in chapter 17, Jesus stops directing instruction to his disciples and he turns to his father and he offers up a prayer and he prays out loud so his disciples will hear him. And in that prayer, Jesus effectively does two things. One, he reports to his father that his mission is complete and that he has completed it successfully. And then he prays his disciples and all of us who are in his family all the way home. And our text this morning is John chapter 17, verse 3, the beginning of that prayer. And so let me read to you John chapter 17, verse 3. Jesus says, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So point number one, if we want to be able to live as kingdom citizens and rise above the challenges that come our way, Jesus says that we need to know what eternal life is. We need to be able to identify it and know that we have it in present possession now, and it's not something that we will experience at some point in the future. And I think that he's emphatic about this when he says that this is eternal life because he knows that we have a tendency to misunderstand things at times. Now, I think that we get a lot of things right, but sometimes we misunderstand things. My mother-in-law is, uh, I have great in-laws, and my mother-in-law is a particularly inspiring person to me because in her midlife, in her 40s, she went from being primarily a stay-at-home wife and mother to becoming the highest qualified paramedic, EMT, and full firefighter in her county. So whenever there was a call, Sue would go to the call whether or not she was at home or whether she was on duty because she had, the, she had the skills and the ability and the credentials to administer medicines and perform skills that nobody else did. And one time when she was at home, she got a call that there was a person in distress and they needed her, so she jumped in the car, she drove over, and when she got there, she found that there was not a lot of action going on and she was perplexed by this. She walked into the home And she was told that the person had passed away before they had gotten there. And looking across the room, Sue saw a frail woman sitting in the chair. Her head was tilted back, her mouth was open, her eyes were closed. And Sue was confused because it didn't seem like they had given her any treatment whatsoever. And regardless of whether or not uh, what state she was when they arrived, they should have done something to, to, to assist her. And so Sue walked over and she was looking at this woman and analyzing her and trying to figure out what was the cause of her her death. And as she got closer to her and she looked at her face, the woman took a deep breath and her eyes opened up and Sue yelled, she's alive, she's alive. And nobody moved. Perplexed, she looked over to her colleagues and wondered why they weren't doing anything. And one of them said to her, Sue, the decedent is in the back bedroom That's his wife that you're talking to right now. Sue had misidentified. She had mistook the person who was alive for the person who was dead. Now she gets tons of things right. She's delivered babies and brought life into the world. She's brought people back from the brink of death, but on that score, she was wrong. And I'd like to suggest that when it comes to thinking about living as kingdom citizens in this present world, that sometimes we get it wrong too, because we equate eternal life, this thing that Jesus says that we we need, that's so important, with some place in the future, maybe after we die, but not in the present right now. Years ago, I used to do a lot of evangelism, whether it was going door to door or handing out tracts or doing some open-air preaching, and often I would ask people this question, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would spend eternity? Because you can have eternal life in heaven with Jesus. Now, that might be true. You can have eternal life in heaven with Jesus, and you should question where you're going to spend eternity. But the message that I was giving them was that eternal life was something that you obtained after, that, after you die, and it's in heaven. So, the emphasis, was on, the emphasis was on duration and location. But that's not the emphasis in the Gospel of John. Certainly, eternal life is made up with life that is eternal, eternal, right? It is ongoing. There is a duration to it, and there is a location that ultimately one day we will be with the Lord. But it is not something that we have to wait for. It is something that is the present possession of everyone who is a follower of Jesus, and it is the characteristic of what kingdom living looks like. In the Gospel of John, John 3.16, we read, "...for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but has eternal life. Doesn't say that he will inherit eternal life or he will get it after he dies, but it is a present possession now. A little later on in John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says this, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life and will not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. Those who know Jesus have eternal life now. John later in 1 John chapter 5 writing to an early gathering of believers says this in verse 11 and this is the record that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son who has life, whoever does not have the son does not have life. I write these things unto you who have believed in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have present tense eternal life. So, if we have this eternal life, if we have this kingdom life, the question is then, what is this possession that we have? What is eternal life? What does kingdom living look like? And Jesus doesn't leave us to question. In John chapter 10, he's engaged in a discussion with the Pharisees, and he says to them in verse 10, the thief comes to kill and to destroy, but I have come that they might have life and life abundantly. Jesus' definition of eternal life is an an abundant life. Is it in the future? Yes, but there is a present tense right now of life that we can have that is an abundant life. Now, sometimes when you hear this verse, you will hear people say that what that means then is that you can have your best life now or that Jesus wants you to be happy on an emotional level or that he wants you to be completely healthy or that he wants you to prosper and give you great wealth because that's what abundant living looks like that is categorically false. That is not what Jesus is meaning in this passage. Does Jesus want you to be happy on an emotional sense? I'm not convinced that that's exactly what he wants. Does he want you to be filled with deep joy? Yes. Does he want you to have meaning and purpose? Yes. Is happiness a byproduct of those things? Yes. But it's not the end that Jesus has in mind for us. Jesus talks about eternal life. And that life is a life of thriving and flourishing in being the kind of things that He has created us to be. He tells those who listen to Him in John chapter 7 He says, Everyone who believes in Me, out of their heart will flow rivers of living water. He tells the woman at the well that He is living water and that whoever comes to him and drinks of him will never thirst again. He says that he is the bread of life and whoever eats of him will never be hungry again. We know that Jesus isn't talking about physical things there because Jesus himself gets thirsty and Jesus himself gets hungry. He is talking about on a deeper spiritual level that at the core of who we are, the essence of who we are as people, who God has created us to be, that we can experience that in large measure now. Because whoever knows the sun will be set free, and we will be set free indeed. So if we want to have the ability to rise above circumstances, if we want to be able to live as kingdom citizens in a unique way that's different from maybe the world response, we need to recognize and realize that kingdom living, eternal life, doesn't begin at some point later on. It is not a pie in the sky by and by but that is a present possession that we have now because we have come to know Jesus as our Savior. Which raises the question then, where is this eternal life found? What is the source of this? And in the second clause in our verse this morning, Jesus tells us where it is. He says that this is eternal life. This is kingdom living. This is the present tense experience of people who are followers of me can have. It's an abundant life but it's in knowing the one true God. If we want to overcome our circumstances, if we want to rise above them, we not only need to correctly identify what eternal life is, we need to recognize and be connected to its source. And Jesus says that source is God. Now, it's important to point out here that Jesus says that it's in knowing you, the one true God. He doesn't say it's knowing about you, the one true God. An ounce of knowledge of God is far greater than a ton of knowledge about God. Because knowing about God doesn't give you eternal life. Knowing God gives you eternal life. And there's a vast difference between the two. Years ago, my wife Nancy and I were in an airport in Toronto. We were flying from Toronto to New York. We were sitting at the gate and the gate was almost entirely full of Orthodox Jewish folks. They were easy to identify because of their style of dress, their hairstyle, and, um, and, and, and other characteristic markings of people who are part of that community. And if you're unfamiliar with the Orthodox Jewish community, they are trying as, as hard as they can to live in the modern world, uh, the Old Testament law. They're doing everything they can to be faithful to the books of Moses And we had the opportunity to talk and engage with them. And I asked them several questions. I wanted to know how they managed to obtain eternal life since there is no priesthood anymore. And there's no temple. There's no sacrifices. And so how did they manage to have their sins forgiven? And the answer that they gave me was just simply this. God expects us to know his word and just do it. And in doing that and keeping his word, that's how we have eternal life. That's how we are, if you want to use those terms, saved. And I said, is it true that there are people in your community who have committed much of the Bible to memory because it is so important to know about God? And he said, yes, and he pointed to an elderly man on the other side of the gate, and he said, that man over there has the first five books of Moses almost entirely memorized. I said, can I ask you one more question? He said, sure, you can ask me as many as you want. I said, does it matter to God when you keep this law and you know this law, whether you do it with a good heart and a, a positive attitude out of love for God, or that you just do it. And he looked at me with this incredulous stare, like it had never even dawned on him before. And he said, if you're an employer, and you have employees and you ask them to do a job, go dig a hole. Do you care that they go and dig the hole with a happy, to- with a happy heart and whistle a happy tune and do it out of love for you? Or do you care that they get the job done? And He said, that's exactly the way it is with God He cares that we get the job done, that's what we've been told to do, and that's how we obtain eternal life, by knowing God. Friends, I want to suggest to you that that is almost entirely wrong. You definitely need to know something about God in order to know God and have a relationship with Him. But there's a vast difference between knowing about God and knowing a lot about the Bible and actually having a relationship with Him. When Jesus uses the word know, that eternal life is to know you, he is not meaning information. He is not meaning more facts. He's not meaning being a great systematic theologian and a Bible scholar. He uses the word know in a relational kind of sense, in the same way that you might know a friend. But there's tons of people that we would know lots about. The Queen of England, the Prime Minister of Canada, sports uh, celebrities, uh, entertainment celebrities, but we would never say that we know them just because we know some things about them, because we don't have an actual relationship with them. And it's in having that relationship with them that we say that we know them. And it is exactly the same thing with God. And this is what Peter means when he says that if that when he says that in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, he writes to this gathering of believers who have gone through difficulties and trials, and he says this: that you have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge or the relationship of him who has called us, Jesus, by his own glory and virtue, by which we have received great and precious promises. And then he says this, by which we have become partakers of the divine nature. When you come to know God, you, come, you become a partaker of his divine nature. And because God is the source of life, life begins to flow through you. C.S. Lewis said this, that God designed humans in the same way that men design an engine. Cars are intended to run on gasoline. They won't run on anything else. And in the same way, God has designed the human machine to run on himself He is the fuel that our spirits are to burn, and he is the food that our spirits are to to feed on. So it makes no sense then to ask if God can give us peace and happiness apart from religion. He can't give us peace and happiness apart from religion because peace and happiness doesn't exist apart from himself. He is the source of life. He is the source of joy. He is the source of peace. And so if we want to have that kind of kingdom living now that is characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and gentleness and self-control, a life that has meaning and that has purpose, then we need to be connected to the source of that. And when we are, we can't help but experience those things. In the same way when a branch is grafted into a living vine, that life starts to flow through that new branch and produces fruit. The same way when you take a, ma- a magnet, you take a, maybe a metal ring and you click it onto the magnet and that magnetic force connects it. And then you take another metal ring and you touch the bottom of the first one and it connects and you could add multiple magnet- and multiple rings because the force of that magnet is running through all of the rings and it's connecting, to, it's connecting them all. And so when we're connected to God, that life of God runs through us. But the problem is we typically don't want to be connected to God. Whether it's before we became Christians or even after we become Christians. We tend to look for those things that we deeply desire that characterize this eternal life or this kingdom living. We tend to look for it being satisfied in all kinds of other ways. Maybe it's pleasure. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's wealth. Maybe it's status. But none of them ever ultimately satisfy. Russell Simmons, who is a billionaire record producer, said, if you put me in a room with 15 other billionaires, I'll show you 13 unhappy people. Truman Capote, the most famous writer of his generation, said that fame is worthless, except perhaps to cash a personal check in a small town, because people know who you are. But otherwise, it doesn't provide any long-lasting satisfaction or purpose. We need to be connected to the source. We need to be connected to God. But even after we become followers of Jesus, we have a tendency to look in other places for that satisfaction. Jesus, uh, when we come to know Jesus as our Savior, we become followers of Him. We're very excited about it, and we maybe have a passion for Him. And so we get into His Word, and we start reading it, and we start memorizing it. And if we're not careful, knowing this Word and memorizing this Word and becoming an expert in this Word becomes the end in itself, And the word doesn't become a means to an end, which is the ultimate thing of having a relationship with God. It becomes the thing itself. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer says that there is a tendency after our initial passion for Jesus wears off that we start to look to other things like becoming well-known for our acumen in theology. And if we know enough, then maybe people will ask our opinion in our circles because they know that we're We're adept in the word, and maybe someone will actually invite us to lead a Bible study or preach in a church, and soon enough, that becomes the end in itself rather than the end in itself being connected and in a deep, meaningful relationship to God. But these substitutes, they'll never satisfy, and I know because I was a substitute, teacher. When I was in high school, I was not a good student. I was a terrible math student. In fact, I failed the same math class twice. The first time I took it, I failed. The second time I took it, the teacher said, "If you come in on a regular basis at lunchtime and you hel- and you and you um, and, and you let me help you and give you a- instruction, that when it comes time to take the final exam, as long as you're getting you get close to passing, I'll I'll give you extra bonus marks and we'll push you through." And so that's just what I did. And I went and I I went in every day at lunch, and she helped me. Came time to take the final exam. I took the exam. I wasn't sure exactly how I did. I called her on Friday. I said, how did I do? She said, you failed. I said, would you remember our agreement? She said, sure. She said, come on in. You were close. So I want you to come in. And so I went into the school. No students, just some teachers milling around. She said, come over here. She said, I'm going to give you a copy of the exam. I want you to take it home. I want you to do it. I want you to get someone to help you do it. I want someone to do it for you. Bring it back and I will grade it. And if you've passed, I'll put it in your file and you can get on and you can graduate high school. Several years later, I managed to acquire a teaching certificate. And you know where my first teaching job was? I was a substitute. Back in that same high school, back in that same classroom, in the exact same math class. And when I walked in, of course, I knew, I, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to give anybody any help. And so, When the students started to ask me questions, I said, well, who is the best math student in this class? And they pointed to a boy named Tyler, and I said, if you have any questions, you ask Tyler, because I'm only the substitute. I don't have, and I can't give you what you really need. And that's the same thing with whatever it is other than God. Maybe it's theology. Maybe it's just rituals and practices where we get our identity and we get our sense of meaning or value by making sure that we're living a particular kind of way and we see that as the end of the Christian life as opposed to the the true end is knowing God on a deep relational way. And so we need, if we really want to overcome and we want to rise above our circumstances. One, we need to identify what eternal life and kingdom living looks like, that it's not something in the future, but it's something that we can experience in the present tense to a large measure because Jesus has come and he said that we can have an abundant life here and now. The means to acquiring this abundant life is being in a relationship with God. It's being connected to him because he is the source of this life, but we need to be connected to him. And the entire assumption of the grand story of the Bible is that humanity as a whole and individuals prior to the relationship with Jesus are disconnected to God. Therefore, we need not to only to be connected to God, we need someone to connect us with God and bring us to God because we are alienated from him. We are separated from him. Sometimes you hear that we have offended God, but we haven't just offended God no one stands before a judge and when they've committed a crime and the judge says, you've offended me, so I'm going to give you a punishment. The judge says that you are guilty of committing a crime and thus you warrant this penalty. And no doubt we have offended God, but we are objectively guilty on a grand and on a personal level of committing cosmic treason. We have said to God, we don't need you. We have unplugged ourselves from the source of life and said that we can be our own source of life. And there are natural consequences to that. In the exact same way that there are natural consequences to jumping off the building, gravity doesn't say, you've offended me and so now you're going to fall down and get hurt. But gravity is a natural law that if you do step out off the edge of the building, you will fall down and you will get hurt. It's just the natural outworkings of that action. And being separated from God is just the natural outworkings of rejecting God. But when we do that, we become spiritually dead. And we are actually guilty and under the condemnation of God for that action. We need someone then who can mediate between these two parties. Us as the offenders. God as the offended party. And that's where Jesus comes in. In John 17 verse 3, the third clause here is this. That this is eternal life that you may... Know you the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It is Jesus' job to bring us together in connection and with, into unity with God so that we can have eternal life and that we can overcome our circumstances now and live as kingdom citizens. Timothy Smith grew up in Louisiana. Loved baseball. He had a whole bunch of baseball cards, but he had one favorite player. His favorite player was a pitcher for the Philadelphia Phillies. His name was Tug McGraw, bigger-than-life personality. One day when his mom wasn't home, Timothy went through her things, was rummaging around through her closet, found a box, opened it up, found all kinds of documents, and found his birth certificate. And to his shock, on the birth certificate, the occupation of his father, which was long-haul trucker, had been replaced with professional baseball player. And the name of his father on the birth certificate wasn't the name of the father that he knew. It was, in fact, the name of his idol, Tug McGraw. Timothy was totally shocked. He couldn't believe, and he had no way of sort of putting this this disequilibrium going on in his mind together. How could the man he knew not be his father, how could his idol end up being his father? And it was in that moment that Timothy Smith realized that he was who we all know him better as, the country music superstar Tim McGraw. Because Tim McGraw's father was Tug McGraw. But he had no way of having a connection or a relationship with Tug McGraw. He was alienated from him. In fact, Tug didn't even know that he existed. And so his mom stepped into the breach between Tim and his father Tug and picked up the phone and called him and said, hi, Tug, you remember 11 years ago when we had that summer relationship? I have some news for you. And she told him that he had a son. And she brought Tim and Tug together. And they established a relationship. And a relationship that lasted and grew deeper and deeper until Tug actually passed away, and Tim and his wife took him in and cared for him. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He stands in the gap between Us, the guilty party, and God, the judge. And he comes and he has the message and he says this, God's heart is to forgive you. God's heart is to give you eternal life. He wants to be reconnected with you. He wants his life to flow through you. He wants you to become a partaker of his divine nature. But the first thing that you need to do is recognize that you are an offending party. That you are guilty of treason. That you are guilty of cosmic treason. And because of that, there are natural consequences that you have unplugged yourself from God, and you are spiritually dead, but you're also underneath the wrath of God. But God's heart is to forgive you, and he can forgive you because I've come to tell you, one, that you need to acknowledge that and repent, and two, I'm going to give my life, and I'm going to take upon myself the wrath that is due you. And once I do that, then there will be no barriers between you and God, and you can be reconnected and have a relationship with him. This is what Jesus means when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through me. He is the way to the Father. He is the door. He is the gate. He is the means by which he is the mediator through which God communicates to us eternal life. But we need more than just a mediator. We need more than just someone who will connect us again to the life source who is God. We need somebody who can then model for us What living the kingdom life actually looks like now that we have the ability, now that we have access to this resource of God. And that's what Jesus is. In the book of Hebrews, the author is writing to a group of folks who are going through very difficult trials. They are really struggling to rise above. Many of them are turning and leaving faith in Jesus and going back to their Jewish lifestyle. And the advice that the writer of Hebrews says is that they need to, Hebrews chapter 12, look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We need to look to Jesus as an example of how to live this kingdom life that we now have access to. So then when it comes to how do we treat our enemies, what do we do? We look to Jesus. We find somewhere in the Gospels where Jesus interacted with his enemies. When it comes to how we relate to God, we look to Jesus and we say, how does Jesus refer to God and how does Jesus pray to God? When we want to know how do we interact with those in our family, we look to how Jesus interacted with his family or those on the margins and the outskirts of society. How did Jesus interact with them? Because he is our model for how to live this kingdom life. And when we're trying to overcome circumstances that are difficult and challenging, what do we do? We try and find a place in the scriptures where Jesus did that. For the sake of time this morning, we're not going to turn there, but you're welcome to at home. And the best place that we can find for that is Jesus on the night before he's going to be crucified after he has had this upper room discourse, after he has told the disciples where eternal life can be found, that it's found in a relationship with God via himself, it says that Matthew chapter 26 says that they went out. And they went out to a place. And Jesus knows that the most difficult challenge of his life, the most difficult challenge of anyone's life is set before him. And so when we look to Jesus, what do we find him doing? Now, if you remember at the beginning of this talk this morning, I said that there are three main points, and if you bear with me, these three broad ones will narrow down and finally get to the sharp part, of the, the narrow part of the funnel, and we will have some very practical advice on how to live kingdom lives and rise above our circumstances. And so here they are as we look to Jesus. The first thing that Jesus does in Matthew chapter 26, after they've left and they've gone out from this dinner and he knows he's going to be arrested, he says to his disciples, this is really hard. He acknowledges that he's going to go through something and he is going through something that's tough. Jesus is a realist and he doesn't try and put up a false front. He says, my soul is crushed to the point of death. He doesn't say, this is no big deal, boys. I know that I'm going to be crucified and have the sins of the world placed upon me and be separated in some way from God my father. But hey, it's okay, I can handle it. He is honest and he recognizes that some things in life just really are hard. And I don't know what it is that you're going through. And maybe nothing compares to what Jesus went through. But it doesn't mean that it's not hard for us. And it's okay to say we don't have it all together. It's okay to say that this is a challenge. It's okay to be open and to be transparent and say this is hard. And Jesus says this is hard. The second thing Jesus does is he gathers around him his friends to support him. And he says, stay here, be with me. And he asks them to come with him. He goes a little bit further than them to be a little bit alone, but he wants them to be there so he knows that they have his back, that they're surrounding him. And the third thing he says is, the third thing he does is he prays. The text says this, that Jesus went a little bit further and then he prayed and he came back and he found that they were asleep and then he went and he prayed again. And he came back and they were asleep and then he went and he prayed again. Jesus valued prayer. And when he found himself in need of overcoming a really challenging experience in his life, he prayed. The fourth thing that Jesus did was when he he prayed and he realized that God was not going to answer the prayer in the way that he wanted, he submitted himself to God's will. He says, Lord, Father in heaven, if this cup can pass from me, then please let it, but not my will, but yours be done. And when he realizes the cup will not pass from him, He submits to that and he says, all right, come on, let's go. And he gets up and he faces the situation, knowing that it is part of God's will and that God will see him through this. Because lastly, Jesus keeps things in perspective and he has a long view in mind. The writer of Hebrews continues in chapter 12 and says this, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. Jesus knew that this very difficult and challenging thing that was before him was something that God would take and turn into the greatest good that we would ever see. He looked forward beyond the hard difficulty to the fruit that that would produce and that would come from that. And I don't know what it is that you might be experiencing today. Maybe it has something to do with finances or maybe it's relationships with kids or maybe it has something to do with the coronavirus. I don't know what any of those things are. But I know that when we look to Jesus, we see in him an example that we can follow in order to live a kingdom life and overcome these circumstances. And one, the one way we do that is by acknowledging that things are hard. Two, surrounding ourselves with those who are like-minded and, and, and love us and that can support us. Three is by praying. Four is by submitting to the will of God. And five is by recognizing that regardless of what happens, that in the long run, Jesus is in, God is in control and he will turn it to good. And so if we want to rise above, as it were, our circumstances, if we want to live as kingdom citizens, the first thing that we need to do is we need to recognize that eternal life and kingdom living is not for the future, it's for now. We have the access to God who is the source of this eternal life. We have access to God through the person of Jesus who has made it that way for us and he has modeled for us what kingdom living looks like. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today for your word. I pray that you are honored and glorified as it was preached. I ask that you would use it to help those who are trying to rise above the circumstances of our life, which are many, and that we would do so in a way that honors you because we have the resources through our relationship with you. We have a model in the person of Jesus that we can follow, and we have your spirit, which gives us the ability to do so.